0: into baseball. And my goodness, you just pressed play on this particular podcast. And I'm going to share a little bit of not so inside information about a term that gets used a lot in this sport. And almost always incorrectly. Good morning to you. Good Tuesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports. This is Daily Shot of Pirates. It comes your way bright and early every weekday if you're into football and or hockey. I also offer up Daily Shots of Steelers and Penguins right where you found this. Let's talk, and I mean really talk, about Major League Baseball's luxury tax. And yeah, you have heard that term. A lot. You've heard it applied to baseball a lot. And I'm here to tell you in a totally non condescending, completely accepting way that you've probably heard it in only the wrongest of wrong ways. Let's start. Let's start with this. No one actually calls it, meaning inside the sport, certainly not the lawyers, involved a luxury tax. It's known as the competitive balance tax. Now, this is one whale of a misnomer because it doesn't come close to achieving competitive balance, obviously, or I'd have nothing to talk about on this show during the lockout. And secondly, it doesn't even aspire to do anything of this sort. Here's how it goes. Any team that spends over a certain threshold, this is the part that you probably are familiar with, at least conceptually, has to pay a tax. They have to pay a set penalty based on a set formula. And you think to yourself, at least you know peripherally, All right, well, that means that the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Mets and the Angels and the other teams that spend a lot of money have to give up some of that money, and then that cash will in turn trickle its way down to the masses, down to the Pirates and the Marlins and the Orioles and whoever else is is down there, the, the bottom feeders, the poor teams, and they will wait happily for their crumbs from above. The problem with that is that only one team really pays the competitive balance tax, and that's the Dodgers. The Dodgers, with their 9 bazillion dollar payroll this past year, paid $32.6 million in the competitive balance tax. For most of this past season it had appeared they'd be the only team paying into that because they were the only ones that went over the threshold until at the very end it had been determined that the Padres of all teams, based in a market the size of Pittsburgh, I might add, in San Diego, barely crossed over into it because of the massive 14-year, $340 million commitment that they made to Fernando Tatis. And they paid a penalty a tax of 1.3 million so your total amount that was put into that tax pool the total amount collected by baseball's tax man was 33 million dollars okay 33 million i mean it's not nothing if you spread that among the lower bottom You know, breadcrumb waiters, that's a decent amount. It's something, it's not nothing. Well, problem with that. The actual way that this works is that the first $13 million that's collected of this particular tax money and it's a flat figure, $13 million. The first $13 million that's collected out of however much money there is is used to fund player benefits. It goes towards players. $13 million of it. Okay, well, okay, that's that's fine, but there's still $20 million left, right? $20 million is still a decent amount. Uh, if you split that up between the three or four poorest teams, that's like a backup shortstop for each one of them, right? Okay, well, hang on. 50% of the remainder of the non-$13 million, dollars, in this case, that's a total of $10 million, is used to fund players' individual retirement accounts, their IRAs. That goes across the board, all players. Everything's going to the players so far. Out of the 33000000 million that's been collected, again, almost all of it from the Dodgers, you're now at a total of $23 million that's all going to the players in some form or other. Not something that they'll see the next day, not something that they'll be able to go out and you know, buy a new car with or whatever, but all to the players. The remainder of that, the other half of that money, goes to the teams to which teams well to all of the teams that don't cross the threshold you're gonna think I'm making this up but it's right there in black and white it's split evenly if you don't cross that threshold you get an evenly applied slice of that pie In other words, this past season, every team except the Dodgers and Padres, the other 28 teams, all received a check for $373,990. The Yankees got the same check as the Mets did. The Mets got the same check as the Pirates did. Pirates got the same check as the Rays and the Marlins and the Orioles and everybody else. That's your luxury tax. That's your competitive balance tax. This portion of Daily Shot of Pirates is brought to you by our friends at North Shore Tavern that's directly across Federal Street from PNC Park. It's home of Steak on a Stone, an eating experience, underscoring the word experience. The steak is brought to you partially cooked on an 800-degree stone, and you do the rest. It's a ton of fun, it's a great meal, and it's a baseball atmosphere like no other in Pittsburgh. North Shore Tavern, right across Federal Street from PNC Park. I'm going to repeat it. For dramatic effect. $373,990. That's the amount that goes to all 28 teams in 2021 that didn't spend over the competitive balance tax threshold. That's it. It's barely half of a single player's minimum wage. And just to make sure that it's fair, the Yankees get every bit as much as the Pirates now. I'm going to throw in some of the qualifiers that the more knowledgeable among you, or the ones who have the most free time to have wasted this much brain space on something this arcane, are no doubt thinking, well, the pirates are getting other revenue sharing money. They are. They're getting a lot of it. Almost all of it is something that's spread completely evenly among all 30 teams. That's just the universal truth. Without getting into all of those numbers and really annihilating you with a bunch of digits and decimal points this early in the day, I'll just say this. The national TV money is spread completely evenly. The advanced media money, as it's known in baseball, meaning the internet stuff, the MLB.TV, anything related to .com this or .com that is spread completely evenly among all 30 teams. Even, even, not a lot of people know this, 48% of all local revenues are split evenly. Did you know that? Yeah. Any local dollar that's accumulated, whether it's in Los Angeles or whether it's in Pittsburgh, 48% of it goes into a pool and then gets spread out evenly. So why is there the massive economic imbalance that there still is? Well, that's because of that other 52%. That's because the Dodgers have a TV contract that is, oh, depending on which measure you value the most either seven or eight times greater than the one that's paid out here by AT&T SportsNet Pittsburgh that's why the dodgers have a huge pool of money compared not just to the pirates but to pretty much everybody so there is a system in place for sharing these revenues a lot of them even at the local levels are shared, it's still nowhere near the revenue sharing models that we see in football and hockey and basketball. It's just not. In football, it's super easy because almost every game, meaning every regular season and every playoff game, the only ones that are the exceptions are the preseason games, are nationally televised. So, Everything is already in the same pool. There's no reason to divide anything up. In baseball, with 162 games, the much thicker schedule, and the greater programming that's offered, it's different. It just is. But that said, every single thing I just mentioned to you has nothing to do with a competitive balance tax. All of that was before the break 100% of it was before the break it is a total non-thing in baseball except for the sum of money that the Dodgers are required to pay and by the way have no problem paying so it doesn't deter them from doing anything it's hardly a ceiling or cap of any kind on that particular franchise when we come back just one question J1Q comes to us from Justin, who asks, "Will the Pirates ever have another 40 home run hitter? The last one was Willie Stargell in 1973." And Justin doesn't point out there, but he did in a subsequent exchange we had that Brian Giles had 39. He's like, "Come back to him," and I go, "Wait a second, what about Giles?" And he says, "Nope, hit 39." Well. Okay, if you want to get technical, the Pirates haven't had a 40-home-run hitter, accurately stated, since Pops way back in 73. It's a long, long time to go without a 40-home-run bat, particularly conspicuous in an era where baseball, A, allowed a whole lot of cheating to go on, In the 90s, and B has had multiple periods, including very recently, of sneaking a juiced ball into the sport. Somehow the Pirates have missed out on both of those waves. They even missed out on the cheating version of Barry Bonds. Barry waited until he was in San Francisco to start making his head grow ten sizes too big. The Pirates have been robbed of all the wrongdoing that could have led to home runs and even some of the ones who did so cleanly and honestly. My answer to your question, Justin, is that yes, we will see another 40 home run hitter for the Pirates. I don't say that because of anything Pirates related. I say that because you can see from these various machinations behind the scenes secretly surreptitiously actually that baseball really wants home runs the people who run baseball want home runs they would prefer to have them legally they'd prefer to have them just you know happen naturally but if and when they don't baseball finds a way still as this franchise's history proves someone's going to have to actually hit them and If you want to be realistic here as opposed to dreaming, you have to look at the current roster and nowhere else and ask yourself, where's 40 home runs going to come from? Brian Reynolds is the team's best player. Brian Reynolds had an outstanding offensive season, and he hit 24. He did so in 559 official at-bats, which means it wasn't about being robbed of plate appearances. He had all kinds of opportunities. He did hit for power, and he topped out at 24. From there, the next two guys on the home run list are now both gone. Gregory Polanco had 11. Colin Moran had 10. So who are you left with? It's Yoshi Tsutsugo. Yoshi, of course, had the eight home runs for the Pirates in a short period of time, six weeks, 43 games, 127 at-bats. If you multiply Yoshi's games, and I'm being really crude with the math here, times four, and you multiply his home run production, yeah, it still ends up in the low 30s. And Yoshi's got some serious pops, all fields, by the way. So, it's not likely with this current group. The top power prospect in the system was Mason Martin, who has since somewhat curiously, I think, been exposed to the Rule 5 draft that might or might not ever happen now since it was canceled earlier this month. And that, in and of itself, might be a signal that Ben Charrington and his baseball ops staff don't value pure raw power as much as some other teams might. Martin strikes out a ton. That's his big, big problem. It was his problem in Altoona. He has the light tower power, but he doesn't, you know, make contact often enough to convince you that he'd be able to survive in the majors long enough for it to matter. So is it imminent? No. Is it possible? Heck yeah. Anything can happen. I mean, Josh Bell came along and showed everybody in that one magical month in 2019, the month of May, of course, that anybody can go on a power rampage. Well, not anybody, but any team can have someone go on a power rampage for a short period of time. JB could have been that guy. Could have been that guy, no doubt about it. I appreciate the question. I appreciate everyone listening. The Daily Shot of Pirates. Let's do it again tomorrow.